Hi, I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo, and I am so happy to be spending the next hour or so with you because this Staff Picks episode is one of my favorite holiday traditions. We'll be hearing from the Kobo staff all over the world about the best books they read in 2022. Don't get me wrong. I love the best of your list. We publish a great one ourselves, but there is no substitute for a reader who just has to tell you about a great book they read. And Kobo is absolutely full of that kind of reader. So let's get into it and hear about the best books read by my colleagues in 2022. Can you tell us your name and what you do at Kobo? Um, hi, I am Marjolein uh, van Doren, and I am the Publisher Relations Manager, and I'm based in Amsterdam and the Netherlands. And what is the best book you read this year? So I read The Collected Works, which is basically not a book of collected works by Lydia Sandgren, and it's a debut novel from Sweden. Why did this grab you? It's... Well, everything you actually need in a novel. So it's 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 captivating. It has some mystery in it. It's a very unpleasant uh, uh, protagonist, uh, which is Martin Berg, who works as a publisher in, in uh, Gothenburg in Sweden. And he's not very good at publishing, to be honest, but his view on publishing is hilarious. And um, his wife left him uh, about... Uh, 10 to 15 years ago, and he and his daughter are looking for her during the novel, which is quite great. Uh, it's all about family and about miscommunication between father and daughter and father and his wife and everything that comes with it. So it was quite captivating. And so would would you consider it a, a work of literary fiction, a mystery? Uh, what? Uh, where would you categorize it? It's a book of literary fiction, and in the press, it's compared to uh, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, and that's basically what it is. Uh, it is a big book about relationships and, uh, in this case, family. And is this the kind of book that you normally read, or was this a, you know, was this a, an adventure for you? No, it's a book I normally read. I loved it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you tell us your name and what you do at Kobo? My name's uh, Nimod Narayanan, and I'm the VP of Technology at Kobo. And what is the best book you've read this year? The best book I've read this year is Ducks, uh, Two Years in the Oil Sands by Kate Beaton. Tell me about it. It's a graphic novel and a very moving memoir of the author's two years working at the oil sands in Alberta, Canada. The story starts off with the author uh, in Cape Breton and the East Coast. She wants to pay off her student loans and decides to go to Alberta in uh, search of labor to earn some money and pay off her loans. And what follows is uh, very, um, it, sad uh, in some ways, in many ways, I'd say, of a story of her working in what is otherwise a toxic environment, work environment in many ways. Uh, certainly we know of the environmental effects, the effects on First Nations lands, but she also brings a perspective of uh, a woman working in a field dominated by men where um, harassment and other behaviors are normalized. And do you have to be a, a fan of graphic novels to uh, to appreciate this? No, this is a very um, accessible story. And I, I, the example I'd give is most of the books I read is not interesting to my partner, Lily, but she actually devoured this book uh, uh, with great interest. Yeah, she loved it too. And if you are a fan of graphic novels what are what are some other ones that kind of you know that are kind of like this it's very much like mouse or persopolis uh, which mm -hmm. are very moving personal stories um the difference i would say and i read this last night again in preparation for this podcast uh is she does take her time through the story 
And there are lots of pages where there's just one panel of her uh, watching the beach or just showing a three-legged fox. And so it is not as dense as the other stories are. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, it's very accessible in terms of uh, not having to follow through so much action, so to speak. And now having seen other images of of the oil sands, I've got to imagine that as a as an environment to capture in a graphic novel, there have to be some some pretty fantastic images that are shown there. Yeah, there are. And she while she does show the the landscape, uh, I think what is more uh, what was more impressive is uh, showing the landscape of the actual, the factories themselves, because a lot of the uh, pictures we saw as a result of the environmental disaster was uh, was around the toxic ponds and the ducks and all the environmental effects, but not of the industrial complex itself. And that mm -hmm. itself is very interesting. And so one more time, the author and the name of the book? The book's name is Ducks, Two Years at the Oil Sands by Kate Beaton. So my name is Jenny, and uh, the book that we're going to be recommending today is Babel by R.F. Kuang. And this is a two-person recommendation. So who is our second recommender? My name is Alana. And what do you do at Kobo? I am a communications coordinator at Kobo. And Jenny, what do you do at Kobo? I'm the product marketing coordinator. And what is it about this that uh, made it so great? Oh my gosh, it, there's so much to say, honestly. It is it is a historical fantasy kind of dark academia vibe, um, and it built out this whole world where it really talked about translation and language, and it's also an amazing commentary on colonialism, anti-colonialism from the point of view of people of color, particularly students at this academic institution, of which they kind of realize they're being taken advantage. And it was just an amazing commentary on so many themes inside this like beautiful, atmospheric, very vibey um, setting. And it was just a joy to read, honestly. Jenny, what grabbed you about this book? I really loved the humanity of the main characters and being in their perspective. Um, we follow four different students. So there's Robin Swift, um, Rami, Victoire, and then Letty. And um, each of them comes from a different walk of life and a different background and race. And the way that they interact with the academia, the magic, um, and also their place in this historical context is very different. And seeing, you know, how they interact with each other and how their stories are very different because of where they have come from and their, you know, race and their backgrounds is just so interesting. Um, and like the colonial aspects that work into the story. So I loved it for both like the huge themes that it explored, but also the very human element of our main characters. This book was was occupying a spot near the top of my to be read pile for good a good piece of this year. And I just started a little while ago. One of the things I love about it is that mix of historical setting, but with a layer of magic kind of on top of it. Uh, for people who don't know uh, RF Kong, what are other books that are like this or that would, uh, you know, if you liked it, you'd, you'd want to go in this direction? So if you're a fan of dark academia books, especially like The Secret History, um, maybe Ninth House by uh, Lee Bardugo, those books that are set in academic settings um, and explore some of these dark themes in that setting, uh, this one is a fun one. Although those ones don't have the historical aspects, um, I do think they explore a lot of like, you know, the death and the uh, darkness of um, what's going on in Babel. Um, but if you're looking for something like by another person of color that has some of those nuances that are in Babel, I would recommend Legendborn by Tracy Dion. That one's also in an academic setting, deals with, you know, colonial history as well um, in a really fantastic way. Elena, anything else that you'd call out in terms of, uh, of other books that might lead you here? Uh, what actually really put me onto this book, I read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell um, by Susanna... Clark. And I also read her book, Piranesi, um, which was one of my all-time favorite books of last year. I thought it was just incredible. Um, and those two really kind of put me into this 
um, this mindset of of dark academia and then also these kind of like bigger themes within these settings. And I just loved it. So when I saw actually in the um, kind of blurb about the book, it is compared to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I was like, oh, I got to go. I got to run. <laughs> this is it for me. <laughs> it's also if, uh, you know, if you are a language nerd, a yeah. translation nerd, you know, it's all about the sort of the the transition between different languages as training people to be translators. Um, so it uh, it absolutely scratches that linguistic itch too, if that's uh, if that's your thing. Give it one more time. Give us the name of the book and the author. Babel I R F Kwong. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us your name and tell us what you do at Kobo. My name is Sarah Desabray and I am Kobo's accounts receivable specialist. What is the book that really stood out for you this year? Uh, so the book that stood out for me this year is called Under the Whispering Door by TJ Clune. What was it about it? When I skimmed the summary online, all I had to see was that it was about ghosts and had a gay romance, and I didn't need to continue kind of after that <laughs> sentence. That, that's all you need right there. It's all Check, I needed. Check both boxes. Yeah, immediately <laughs> was like, okay, how fast can I get my hands on this? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it. So the tagline for the book is, uh, death is only their beginning. And I was like, okay, well, most books don't start off by telling you that the main character is going to die. Um, it's about this like stuffy corporate, really not nice lawyer guy named Wallace, who I swear is like the first chapter. He dies of a heart attack. And then a reaper comes, gets him at his funeral. Is like, hey, really sorry to tell you this, but you're not alive anymore. And he goes to this crossing point that's a little tea shop in a small sleepy town in the middle of nowhere run by a man named Hugo. And Wallace is fighting this. He's like, I'm not dead. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I don't like, I don't want to cross over yet. And Hugo's like, listen, that's okay. Like everyone at their own time, just like hang out with us for a bit. And Wallace does. He stays in the tea shop and he becomes friends with the Reaper and he ends up falling in love with Hugo. And along the way, he learns how to live. It sounds really good. It's so good. Yo, as a like dead like me fan, six feet under fan, this... It... I I think I've got uh, I got time for this one. This it's sounds good. really it's really cute and it's a really easy read. Like it doesn't get like you're talking about death, but it doesn't get super heavy. It sounds almost like you know dead gay and cozy. Like it's got a little yes yes. It's very cozy. <laughs> it's in a tea shop. Like <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 really it's really beautiful and like he's not the only ghost that's there. He's just like the main one and. I'm not one to like look like philosophically into books. Like I don't try to look for meaning, but it, the book really is about like we only have one life and like you really got to make it count. And is there any book that you've read that was anything like this? No, no, absolutely. I mean, I've read I've read my share of of queer romances before, and I'm a really big fantasy novel person. And I finished this. It was immediately like I can't think of anything else ever like this how did you find out about it i think it was through one of those like buzzfeed book lists it's like 20 books new books this month or like 20 new fantasy books or whatever and i just skimmed those for for reading recommendations and yeah ghosts gay romance i'm like okay that's it done and done yeah <laughs> perfect i'm a very easy person to please <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for your time. Tell us your name. Tell us what you do at Kobo. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Elizabeth Scott, and I am the team lead for business operations. And what is the best book you've read this year? The best book that I read this year was Cover Story by Susan Rigetti. What was it about it that made that your best book? So first of all, I read it, I had finished my book, I was on the beach, and I needed something to read. So I was going through my download, it totally took me by surprise how much I liked it. It was just one of my randomly downloaded books on my Kobo. Um, it has a lot of things that I really like in books. So it has unreliable narrators, it has like a bit of a scammer story. It's a little devil wears Prada-y, like it has all my favorite, like, 
taste and like things that I'm like, ooh, if there's an unreliable narrator, I'm going to like this book. So do you remember how you came across it in the first place? No idea. It must have been like a recommendation from like a book club I was in for someone so that they liked it. And is this normally what you would consider a good vacation read? Yeah, absolutely. It has like, uh, for me, so I do read a lot of thrillers and I do like a part of the fun of reading a thriller is think- figuring it out right before the author does or like when you're reading the book and you're like, oh, I'm the best thriller reader there is. But because I was on the beach and read it from like, you know, start of ebook to end of ebook, I didn't have time to reflect on like what I thought the twist was going to be. I was so engrossed by the story that by the time the twist came, I genuinely like I thought a lot of things could have been happening but I didn't see that happening so unreliable narrator plot twists Mm -hmm. and definitely good if you're on vacation yeah a definitely great vacation read if you like love the devil lures Prada it's got that like glitz and glam like New York lifestyle like rich Anna Delvey if you really liked my friend Anna or that Netflix show that had come out about Anna Delvey you would also really like it (laughs) Perfect. Okay. One more time. Give us the name of the book and the name of the author. Cover Story by Susan Rigetti. Elizabeth, thanks so much. No problem. My name is Jacques Vio. I am Kobo's senior copywriter. What is your favorite book of this year? Uh, The book I chose this year is called Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. What is it about it that uh, that really got you this year? It kind of uh, came to me at the right time in my life. It was actually recommended to me by Tracy Nesdely a few years ago. So it's been on my radar for a while. It's a companion piece to an earlier book he wrote called Reasons to Stay Alive, which was about his journey with panic disorder that began when he was in his 20s. Uh, He's had serious anxiety and depression. I have some experience with both of those things, more so anxiety. Uh, It's very situational for me. For Matt, he was was quite ill. Um, Notes on a Nervous Planet is also about that, but it's more about outside things that can affect our mental health, uh, like marketing messages, social media, and the constant crazy news cycle. And the result is that we live in a way that's almost designed to make us unhappy. And I never thought that was true of me. And the book helped me understand that I am not necessarily living my life in the healthiest way when it comes to how much time I spend on my phone, um, how I let it affect my sleep cycle, and the um the way I engage with social media. And then also at the time, Twitter started to fall apart. Like I've been part of Twitter for 12 years. I got, I've gotten a lot out of it, but I've also seen some of the darker side of it that is becoming much more prevalent. Just if you needed an extra little dose of anxiety causing material, it it was right there. Exactly. So in terms of tone and style would you would you say it's is it serious is it funny is it memoir is it you know kind of informational and explanatory where would you position it i position it as sort of a a combination of memoir and storytelling matt haig in in audiobook form in particular he's an astounding narrator he's got there's the british accent part of it there's a sort of uh, Morgan Freeman-y kind of feeling to it. And, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, I, I just, I felt a lot of comfort. Well, I, I took long, I tend to take long walks while listening to audio. And he was kind of the perfect companion. Um, and to hear him talk about, especially about the phone, like I used to have my phone on my bedside table and I'd wake up at four in the morning and maybe I'll play Wordle. And then next thing you know, my, my mind is alive. I actually had um, Bart Robers, director responsible for uh, subscriptions and audio. I answered a question on Slack because I saw he had one at like four in the morning. Um, and I was like, oh, I know the answer to that question about Kobo Plus. And, and he thanked me. And then he sent me a private message like, what are you doing? Like working at, at four in the morning. <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh, it's fine. I always do this. And he was like, 
you shouldn't always do that. And I kind of walked away going like, oh, calm down, it's fine. And this book made me realize it, it's actually not fine. Like I don't need to be up between four and six and then falling back asleep and constantly glued to it. You're not on European time. <laughs> That's right. So would you say it's changed habits in your life as the result of of listening to this book? It absolutely has. I keep the phone in another room now. There's there's Matt talks about how, you know, what is the consequence of you not answering a text right away? What is the consequence of you not seeing what's in the news the second it happened? Um, I've had family members in the past year too. Like my mother commented to me, I spent a month with her in October and she she commented on my screen time. And I thought it was a little like, you know, calm down. But no, it is it is rude actually to have your phone at the table while, you know, people are talking to you or to pull it out of your pocket in the middle of a conversation. And I was doing that. And listening to this book, I started to see myself and realized I need to make some changes. Um, he talks a lot about too how people looking at Instagram and TikTok um, are doing a lot of comparisons with what they're seeing, a lot of lifestyle comparison, body image comparison. I don't find I'm doing so much of that myself, but really with the the changes in Twitter, I'm starting to think if I pull back from this, it's not the end of the world. A lot of people are saying, are you going to go to Mastodon? Are you going to go to Hive? And I'm kind of like, I don't think I'm going to go anywhere. I think after 12 years, my needs for it have changed. And is there a book out there that reminds you of this one or that would be an entry point for people that were, uh, were interested in this book? Good question. It reminded me of some of Augustine Burroughs' earliest memoirs, like Running with Scissors and, and Dry, which are also like very personal examinations of, of difficulties they've gone through. Um, it's it's something like that, but it's I think the um, the storytelling aspect of it was um, more comforting to me. And so, one more time, give us the the name of the book and the author. Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. Thanks so much, John. Thank you very much. Tell us your name. Tell us what you do at Kobo. My name is Karen Sood. I am the director for sales operation for the hardware side of the business. Uh, and I've been with Kobo for three years, and this is my second time doing this. So I'm really excited. You're a veteran. Tell us which book was the standout book of the year for you. So my standard book of the year was actually an old book. And it's this all this happened that I'm still reading books from like 2015, 2016. So I have a lot to catch up. <laughs> um, the book that I was, uh, I'm going to talk about is uh, Red Notice by Bill Browder. And before I tell you what the book is about, I'll tell you a little, you know, a short story. I'm going to tell you about Mikhail Kordoski. Mikhail Kordoski was the 15th richest man in the world in 2003 and the richest man in Russia. And then, as all rich men in Russia, maybe, he had a fallout with the government. And by the end of the year, he was serving, at the end of 2003, he was serving a 10-year sentence on various charges ranging from money laundering to tax evasion to embezzlement. And this is the richest man in Russia on national TV behind bars. And when people say why things happen in you know some countries, the way they happen is because they make a show of it. And then when you see the richest man on TV behind bars, you think at yourself, you look at it yourself and then, you know, you get the line. So, so this, but this story is not about Mikhail Kordowski, but it sets the tone of what happens sometimes in a lot of places. And this book is actually a nonfiction, but it reads like a fiction book, like a lot of these true crime stories where you can't tell. And when you go half through a story, you're like, this can't be right. This this can't happen. They can't do it, but it actually happens. So the story is based on Bill Browder, who, like Mikhail Kordowski, is a businessman, and he's a self-made billionaire running a hedge fund in Russia. So he's an American living in, living in Russia. And he, too, becomes friends with the Russian government at first, and he you know makes a lot of wealth and money doing that. And then eventually has a fallout, as he can no longer toe the line that was required, because it conflicts with the way he was running his business. 
And then he becomes an unwelcome whistleblower and the life became and his life and the life of his employees and his company hermitage fund in russia become increasingly heard to a point that they have where they have to run the, the fund in exile from london um, the story takes an even sadder turn when his tax lawyer so his tax lawyer that you know works for hermitage capital is tortured and killed by the russian authorities um, so then the story becomes a story about justice patience friendship and everything in between how the wheels of bureaucracy work how politics works how governments work it's it's all in one and and most importantly i thought it was a lot about friendship because then he spends the next five years of his life trying to get justice for that tax lawyer that basically died defending the work that had been done at his firm um and so and so this is a business book a politics book a true crime book yeah. um, and and like a work of a reportage, all oh. current events, all at the same time. Yes, you can read about how people became Russian. If you want to, a lot of people say, what are oligarchs? The book talks about how oligarchs made, how they got rich, how Russian businessmen got rich, how it operates and it, the whole story through and through. So you can really run about business. You can run about, you know, government, anything. Obviously, Russia in the news very much this year. Oh, yeah. Did that lead you to this book or was this something already on your shelf? Oh, so this is this happened, the timing happened by luck. So I'm always very, you know, I'm always I'm always reading true crime. Mm-hmm. Generally white collar true crime. Um, you know, that's focusing on scams and money laundering and so on and so forth. And then this happened to be somewhere in that cross section. So I started reading it. And interestingly, the things that were happening in Russia and Ukraine just happened at the same time. So it was like timing couldn't have been any better than to read about how sometimes governments operate. So it was just a coincidence. So I didn't look at after it, which just happened to be at the same time. So, but it was a good, good insight into how and how things are unfolding as well. So it, and, it talks a lot about that. And what are some of the other business, true crime, white collar crime books that this stacks up with? I think um, um, Blowout. Blowout is a book by, I think, Rachel Maddow, which is pretty much in line with what this talks about. But that one goes a little bit deeper outside of Russia and talks about how Donald Trump and U.S. elections operate, how they all intersect at some point how the Ukraine, you know, how the servers that were found in some of the countries operated or how, how the whole, how election rigging, not rigging, but how, you know, Influence. online, <laughs> online election, election right. or online behavior of people is changed with ads, et cetera. So it talks a lot about that. So it, it's in that same cross-section. I was really, if someone is reading these sort of books, I would re- definitely recommend this and blow out Barreto Matter. Absolutely amazing true true crime stories. So one more time, give us the name of the book and the name of the author. The name of the book is Red Notice and the author is Bill Browder. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hello, I am Rachel. I am the promotion specialist for KWL. So essentially, I work with the indie authors who utilize the Kobo Writing Life platform and help them promote their books on store. And what is the best book you've read this year? So the book that I loved the most this year was This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. And I actually listened to it as an audiobook, which is weird for me. And this is kind of why it stood out, because I'm a nonfiction audiobook listener. I can rarely listen to fiction audiobooks just because my attention span is very short, but this one grabbed me and I could not stop listening to it. So this is, this is another book that's, that's somewhere in my to be read list. So good. Tell me why I should dig in there and pull it out. So it's unlike anything I've ever read slash listened to. Um, it's kind of an epistolary novel. So the premise is there are two adversaries on opposite sides of a time war, and they keep going either back, usually back in time to try to alter one thing in the past to make the present that they live in what their side wants. And as they're going back through these threads of time, 
they're leaving each other letters. And so it'll be, you know, blue will arrive in a thread and find a letter from red. And then you read the letter from red and see kind of how red reacts. And it's just back and forth throughout the novel. And the language that they use in this in these letters is so flowery and beautiful, yet never feels overly pretentious, which is why it was such a weird audiobook listen, because a lot of times with really kind of superfluous language, you can get lost when you're listening to it, but it is just stunning. And if you like to write letters to people, you will realize how lacking your letters are by the time you finish this book, because it's so beautiful. Or does it help you level up your letter writing game. It can also do that once you get past the initial like, oh, wow, my letters are not great. <laughs> this sounds like one of those books that sits on the, you know, the literary fiction, speculative fiction uh, kind of continuum. Um, who Who's it right for? Is it good for a person who loves literary fiction? Good for a person who loves science fiction? Good for a person who loves fantasy? Where Where would you place it? I would say kind of all of the above. Definitely if you like genre fiction, but genre fiction that does have a little bit more of that flowery language. And also if you like uh, romance oh. without any big spoilers, but it Didn't is- see that coming. Yeah, there is a, a romance element to it. But again, you definitely for fans of genre fiction. Okay. Um, but yeah, a little, little splash of romance in there too. And- Talk a bit about the audiobook performance, because that's, you know, once you're in listening mode, how it's presented becomes key. It was great. It's a dual narrator. Um, it's Cynthia Farrell and Emily Wu Zeller. I pulled it up. Um, and uh, the voices are just different enough that you can absolutely tell the difference between blue and red. And you can also tell the difference between um, because the narrator will also read the action of uh, the character. So the narrator for Blue will read like Blue is running around and finds a letter, obviously much better written than that. Um, and then you can hear the tone switch when they're reading a letter. So the audiobook performance is captivating and it's just the narrator. There's no big fancy production, but just their voices really draw you into the story and really make you feel what Blue and Red are feeling and what they're telling each other. How did you encounter this book as a as a usual nonfiction audiobook listener how did you end up uh listening to this work of fiction in audio i've been trying to dabble into fiction audiobooks for a while i listen to audiobooks when i run and so i was like i'll do i'll try something different and this book kept popping up on my book talk which is such a millennial thing to say these days but it kept popping up on book talk and uh, because it was a dual POV novel, I was like, this would be really interesting to try to listen to. All right. So one more time, give us the name of the book and the author. It is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Thank you so much. Thank you. What's your name and what do you do at Kobo? I am Kristen and I am right now team lead of campaign services on monday acting manager for campaign services <laughs> hey congratulations thank you <laughs> <laughs> and what is the standout book for you this year yeah the standout book for me this year is to paradise by hania yangaria what was it about it that uh that made this like the book for you this year yeah, I mean, I love, love her writing. I was, I loved A Little Life by her. And so I'm so excited when she had this new one come out. And I think Hanya is such a talented prose writer. She could write about anything and I would probably read it. Um, so her writing's beautiful. It's a very heavy, like it's prose. Um, you know, there is plot to it, but it's very character driven, setting driven. Um, and she kind of just sucks you into their world. Um, this one, too, was pretty cool because it was in three different kind of time periods. Um, and so there were some interesting relationships happening between the three different time periods. And I would say it's almost like three different books as well. The first one was kind of like historical fiction. Then you have a little bit of like fiction, literary fiction. And then the third one was about science fiction. So it's a pretty well done book. And we're, it, it seems like we're seeing more of these books that are 
you know, that sits squarely in the literary fiction category, but have these little bits of science fiction or speculative fiction or fantasy sort of hanging on, like interwoven into them. I think there's a few books that I read this year that are kind of similar to that aspect. Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. So good. So, so good. I love her writing too. Um, <laughs> Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Dewar. Um, you know, both are kind of like heavy literary fiction, but they kind of go into that like science fiction-y um, aspect. Also, they kind of both have that time period jumping going on as well. So there's three books that came out that are by amazing authors um, that kind of follow a similar pattern. So is this a book for a, a serious literary fiction lover? Would you also be into it if you if you liked science fiction or speculative fiction? Yeah, I think, honestly, like, I think because her writing is just, it's so easy to read, like, it's so engaging right from the beginning. Um, you know, I think anyone would be into this book. Um, she does her character so well that you're just, like, so hooked in. So, you know, if you do read science fiction heavily um, and you want to try and branch out a little bit into, like, a more literary fiction, this is probably a great book to read. If if you, you know, read historical fiction, this is a great book to read. If you read... Um, say like it's it's a it's a wide open kind of audience mm -hmm. um you know anyone i've recommended it to tends to read you know a range of genres so they've all loved this book and so one more time give us the name of the book and the author two paradise by henry angaria thank you so much thank you my name is renee dontrema and i'm the senior director of communications at racket and kobo and of all the books you read this year, what is the one that really stood out for you? The one I want to talk about today is The Mother of All Degrassi, which is an autobiography by Linda Schuler, the creator and executive producer of the Degrassi series and, and franchise for the past 30 plus years. As a Canadian child of the 1980s, obviously this is kind of embedded. Degrassi is like 30% of my DNA. Tell me about this book. So Linda uh, was born in the UK, moved to Paris, Ontario as a young girl, um, became a, a high school teacher. Um, and there was some some equipment that you could do audiovisual, like like a video camera editing editing equipment. She decided that she wanted to to get down to the sorry, to 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 talk about uh, issues that happen in a teenager's life that wasn't being taught at school because maybe the subjects are a bit too touchy. It could touch on, you know, school shootings, on abortion, all these things that weren't being talked about or were a little bit under the radar. She decided she how important it was and she wanted to do something about it. And she started uh, with a documentary with the, the, the children in her school to showcase the different backgrounds they're from and what they go through from day to day and things like that. And that's how her career started in as a producer. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Does it give people a sense of just how fundamental that show was to you know, kind of people growing up at that time? For people that don't know this, Degrassi is is kind of the show that almost everyone in Canada at in kind of that young adult kind of preteen age watched and saw themselves in at, yeah, at one point or another. Did it capture that cultural significance? It did. Um, so, so basically, as the the series progressed and different generations of kids were in the show, there's a few different iterations of the show over the years. Became very popular around the world and even in the U.S. Uh, and uh, they they talk a little bit about um, you know how how they sort of like Drake comes from there and Nina Dobrev comes from there. But but what was also very interesting, that was a small part of the book. Uh, you know, there, there's testimonials in there about people saying how the show saved their lives, for example, mm -hmm. being like a young gay person in the 80s, for example. They felt you know, all these things, for example, they, they, they kind of said, you know, this show saved me. And, and I think that's really what kept Linda going. Um, it wasn't always easy. They went through various cancellations, changing in broadcasters, all these things. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't a nicely paved road for her. She had to sort of create it on her own. Um, and I'm assuming back then there, there, there were less uh, female producers, to be honest, at the helm of a big uh, production company. 
they they really built it up from scratch and uh it wasn't with without trials and tribulations and actually you know letters from angry parents to 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 broadcasters for example because how dare you talk to my child about this i personally think it's awesome she started this years ago which was a, a new thing at that time she was a trailblazer and did she stay involved with the sh- with the show all the way through she stayed involved uh, all the way through up until now. Um, mm-hmm. So the Grassy, the next generation, I believe it went on for 10 years. It's been off the air for a few now, but uh, there, there's a, a new series for Degrassi in development currently. Um, and uh, she, she's no longer, uh, she no longer owns the rights or the production company that produces it. But I, I think that, you know, a lot of a lot of what she's built, um, they're still going to rely on her knowledge, I think probably most people will end up reading this book and to see what the show has meant to her, how it's grown, how it's progressed and why it's even more important. Now she goes into when we started this, there was no cyber stalking. Now they can talk about online abuse and all these different things to watch out for that. Maybe us as children in the eighties didn't have to do. And you are a great fan of the autobiography. You like, you know, and you like a good celebrity biography In terms of the different flavors of autobiography, uh, you know, confessional versus chatty versus gossipy versus kind of heartfelt and, you know, and insightful, where does this one land? It's not gossipy at all. Um, She talks a lot about, uh, she was in a very bad, Linda I'm speaking about here, was in a very bad car accident uh, in the late 60s. And that actually changed the trajectory of of her life and the things she did in her life. Like she wasn't able to conceive a child, for example. She had chronic pain. And all this sort of has, has helped shape who she is today. And, you know, that means she's had to push herself at certain instances to actually make this all work. Because like at some days she would wake up and be like, I can't do this. I have not the energy. I feel sick. Mm-hmm. She thought that the goal of the show was more important than than her stopping doing what she had sort of learned to to love. So it, it it's not a gossipy autobiography. It's a lot about Linda and her growth through the series and how she's touched people's lives. Um, it's a little bit technical as it relates to how a TV show is produced and what producers are looking for and all the nitty gritty details and the things that we don't think of as a viewer of a TV series. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's very it's very heartwarming. Uh, and she she considers all the Degrassi kids her children. She feels like a mom to them. Uh, she's even she's, she's even taken some of them in at, at certain t- points through her life when they were going through a tough time. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a very heartwarming story. And so you get you get some behind the scenes of of television production. You get one woman's personal journey as a as a producer. You kind of get this cross section of Canadian television if you're you know if that's your thing. And uh, and like. And one person's kind of personal growth and career over a lifetime. That's uh, that sounds fantastic. Yes, with a little bit of of celebrity. Uh, you got to have a little celebrity. Yeah, for sure. There's lots of people who ended up approaching her to be on her show. For example, uh, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus was shooting a TV series and he asked to be in her show. So he was in one episode as... A, a you know a down a down on his luck limo driver driving around people in a rusted limo for example so people would approach her because like it became such a phenomenon not just in Canada but globally as well so that's that was super interesting to me so one more time give us the title of the book and the author the mother of all Degrassi by Linda Schuler Renee thank you so much thank you for having me tell us your name and tell us what you do at Kobo. I'm Harley, and I'm a content QA intern at Kobo. So I just started three months ago. Basically, I make sure that the books work. Very important. If books do anything, they should work. Yes. And what was the book that you read this year that you absolutely loved? All's Well by Mona Awad. It is such a weird book. I love everything about it. It's uh, like a dark comedy, horror, thriller, fantasy, all of these things, which is honestly amazing. Like, I'm still in awe. It's about a 
theater professor. Her name's Miranda. She's suffering from chronic pain. She has chronic back pain from like a theater accident. She'd fallen off the stage during a production of Macbeth. So it's already a little spooky. Mm -hmm. So, and she's in the process of staging a troubled production of All's Well It Ends Well by Shakespeare. So her students wanted to do a different play. She really feels like she wants to do this one. So they're kind of giving her some hesitation throughout the book. And then she miraculously recovers from all of her pain and becomes kind of a different person for the rest of the book. When you think about like, you know, who would I recommend this to or, or what are other books that, uh, that are like this? Is there anything that, uh, anything that you'd link it to? Well, I think, like I said, I like weird books. Anybody else who likes kind of a weird read absolutely would like this. It is similar to her other novel, Bunny, which is also like a weird, uh, dark kind of fantasy situation. So that one would be good. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who likes Shakespeare, there are lots of fun little references in there because she is a theater professor. Any former theater kids would have a fun with this. And are there are there any other books that have that sort of stack of many different genres on top of each other that uh, that you can think of? Hmm. There's one that I think I have mentioned when I when I recommend this book to people. Yep. It's called. It's also one that I'm gonna have to explain, but it's called uh, The Pisces by Melissa Broder. And mm -hmm. it's also another like contemporary fantasy thriller creepy book. It's about um, just another woman who's in you know, a hard time in her life and is getting through it with some fantasy elements. So that mm -hmm. book also has a lot to do with that. It's more you know, it's like showing the emotions through these fantasy elements in their lives, which is really cool. And between creepy and scary where does it uh where does it land are you looking at kind of you know underlying discomfort or actively scary more underlying discomfort it's very i would say eerie very um subversive mm -hmm. but not not no jump scares. i read before i go to bed at night it can't be too scary yeah you're not gonna get nightmares <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one more time, give us the name of the book and the author. It's called All's Well by Mona Awad. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tell us your name and tell us what you do at Kobo. Sure, my name is Ramisa and I'm the Senior Research Manager at Kobo. What is the book that you read this year that you just think was the ultimate book of the year? It was A Place for Us by Fatma Farheen Mirza. And I actually read it back in January, and it stuck with me this whole year. So it lasted the full 12 months. Yes. Okay, that's that's impressive. Tell us all about it. Um, so at, I, you know, in in a very basic term, it's about a family, um, a Muslim family in California. And the brother sort of abandoned the family. Um, and now there's the wedding of the sister and it starts there. Um, and he shows up unexpectedly. And over the course of the novel, we find out from the varying perspectives of the family member uh, why the brother left and what caused that really big rift within the family. And are there are there books out there that that you think are kind of similar to this, just to give people a sense of what they uh, what they might be uh, diving into? Yeah, a um, couple of books that come to mind are All My Rage by uh, Sabah Tahir, as well as uh, Celeste Ng's books, I think, focus a lot on the theme of family and what breaks a family apart or what pulls it back together. Um, yeah, it's very family related. So books books along those lines. Got it. How did you find out about it? I found out about it uh, through social media. I think I just stumbled across it on Bookstagram, and um, I'm really glad that I did. I found really great gems through Bookstagram. Are you also a book talk person? Interestingly, I'm only a Bookstagram person, but there's a lot of book talk reels on Bookstagram because I don't have TikTok. <laughs> you just so. have to wait for them to come around. It's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
is is this the kind of genre that you that you normally like to read or was this a step outside for you it was a step outside in the sense that this book doesn't necessarily have a strong uh plot line in a sense of you know there's a main event that happens it's a very slow burn and usually i don't really go for that type of genre but i think the way that it was written and the way that the author just relays all these emotions i was able to relate on such a visceral level to this, uh, you know, being South Asian uh, descent and then being a Muslim on top. So um, I think just the themes that the the author explores within the novel resonated with me so deeply that I was comfortable reading it, even though it was outside of my zone. So very character driven, very relationship driven, yes. the dynamics of family and family history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that pulled you right in. Yes. Our name of the book is Place for Us by Fatma Farheen Mirza. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hello, my name is Erica Chung, and I am a qualitative analyst as part of the Kobo research team. What was the book this year that you read that just blew you away? The book that kind of blew me away was called uh, Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price. Um and it, I read it as an audiobook, and it really gripped me uh, from beginning to end. And what was it about it that uh, that caught you? It was such a nuanced and multifaceted look at an explanation of what is masking and the consequence and weight of it on uh, people with autism. Um, because I don't know about, uh, I'm pretty sure everyone has experienced a lot of mental health hurdles for the past couple of years because of the pandemic. And as part of my personal understanding of my own mental health um, and being on social media a lot more, I see a lot more conversations about ADHD, mm-hmm. about autism. Yep. And so I got very curious about, well, I want to understand more before I go make a call to my doctor <laughs> to see if there's a conversation to be had there. Mm-hmm. And so... I really appreciated how nuanced, how well explained everything was, but more than anything, the level of intersectionality that was incorporated as part of the research and yeah. foundation of this book, because it's uh, not only does Dr. Price incorporate his lived experience with masking uh, in his work, but he's also talking about how autism, um, it, it's in within racialized communities, it's a much different kind of conversation there mm-hmm. are a different set of hurdles to overcome um and how even if you get a diagnosis it's not a guarantee that it will make everything better right. so um i just really appreciated how it, like from beginning to end it felt like he was like holding your hand as a reader and like walking you through what is it how does it appear what are the experiences and how um once you once you incorporate race, gender, and socioeconomic class, it, it, there's no one-size-fits-all contrary to how it may appear or not appear on social media. And and tell me a little bit about that that idea of masking, because you, you brought that up and it sounds like it's really core to the book. Yes. So masking is a coping mechanism uh, in which a lot of uh, autistic people may use to try to fit into neurotypical expectations and behaviors. And it, uh, I, I like to think of it as like you're constantly performing mental gymnastics throughout your entire day, trying to monitor your own behavior and your own um, maybe your speech patterns. Um, and with that, the book talk t- touches on, you know, stimming as a practice, you know, self-soothing and how a lot of autistic people, uh, part of their masking process is trying to reduce the visibility of them stemming in public mm-hmm. um, so that it doesn't draw further attention. And so uh, it's just uh, it masking. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to the idea of masking, yeah. but I really appreciated the extensive explanation the book provides and also the long-term consequences of having to do that in a neurotypical world where you don't want to stand out, but it's very exhausting. And how did you find out about this book? A close friend of mine actually read it um, and she posted about it on, on like on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I, and like, like I said, I was like on this process of understanding my own mental health situation. And so I was like, Oh, wonderful. 
Uh, oh, it's a long book. I don't know if I have the attention span <laughs> to sit and read it myself, <laughs> like with my eyes. So I was like, oh, an audiobook will be great because I can just listen to it along the way. Um, I do potentially suggest uh, reading it as either a print or an ebook because there are activities and resources that uh, the author provides. Uh, so I've had to like go online to like Google and find the resources myself. But mm-hmm. um, if, if this is something worth uh, of interest and worth reading, um, I do recommend maybe getting an ebook copy to just have those tools. But you found the, the audiobook was a great way to get through the material though and, uh, and take it all in. Yes. Yes. Uh, the book is read by the author himself. Um, so I always really appreciate and like it when audiobooks are read by the author, uh, especially nonfiction, because um, it's not as common. Um, uh, and al- also there's like a, w- a variety of talented voice actors making audiobooks. But yes, the audiobook was a great way to get through the material. Had you read a bunch of other books around the subject and this was the one that stood out? Or did you just happen to find this one and it... Uh... It kind of opened that door for you. I was reading a lot of like um, a lot of opinion pieces, a lot of essays online. Uh, I like I still have a Tumblr account, and so I was like coming across a lot of Tumblr users because mm-hmm. they write extensive essays. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was reading all of that, and then I was like, okay, I feel like I want to know more, and I don't have the energy to fact check every single social media post I come across. <laughs> so. Yeah. When my friend posted about it on her Instagram, I was like, cool, this looks exactly what I'm looking for. There's an audio book um, I can and it's ex- extensively researched because I'm that kind of nerd. So it just hit all the right check boxes. And that's the thing, because I mean, one of the the great things about neurodiversity sort of becoming something that people feel like they can talk about is now there is. Yeah, there's memoir, there's you know personal experience, there's blog posts. It, but the you know that just gives you a giant sample of individual experience, mm-hmm. and then you still need something that kind of synthesizes it all down as like okay, well, so this is a lot of experience. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, it's like what's the core uh, idea, um, and the book. Uh, isn't using like a medicalized uh, version of mm-hmm. uh, or look up at disability. It's using a socio uh, cultural and uh, psychological perspective. And so uh, look, human experience is at the forefront. Um, and it also incorporates interviews um, that he conducted. So is the intersectional piece also kind of grounded in its own research, you know, kind of by community or by, you know, by kind of cross segment? Yeah, so um, uh, the intersectionality component is really shown through the interviews and communities he did his research in and um, just highlighting how there was one example where he's like, I was at an activist meeting and he spoke about how uh, one of the members uh, who was autistic was having, you know, having a hard time communicating Mm -hmm. um, and another activist community member misunderstood and thought that person was mansplaining to her. And that was a moment where, like, as he, as Dr. Price was observing this, the this scenario was like, there's a lot of cross crisscrossing happening, and it may not be intentional harm, but yeah. these are common occurrences that happen, and both people's feelings are completely valid, but how do you diffuse mm-hmm. a situation like that? And they're they're collisions of experience is kind of what you what you end up running into. Yes, exactly. Very cool. Thank you so much for that. That's a really good one. No problem. Uh, I hope you get the chance to like read it when you can. And so one more time, give us the name of the book and the name of the author. The book is uh, Unmasking Autism, Discovering the New Faces of Neurodiversity by uh, Devin Price, PhD. Thank you so much for the recommendation. No problem. Thank you for having me. Tell us your name. Tell us what you do at Kobo. My name is Nathan Maharaj. Um, I am the director of content marketing and uh, I produce this show and I edit this show. And sometimes, sometimes I host this show. 
<laughs> and so this is you know, not only do you get a chance now to be the to be the subject matter rather than the extractor of subject matter um but uh, you are i think the the person who has given a a book recommendation for every single uh year end wrap up that we've done i have i think i've got a perfect record even even in in year i like i think uh, if it goes back to 2018 before I was producing the show and I was just a person putting his name on a spreadsheet. Yes, yeah. exactly. All right. Tell us the, the book that you read this year. That was the best thing that you came across. It's always hard to pick. It's hard because, um, because part of my job is hunting down things that, that, I, that I'm going to love. And that I think that I think you're going to love that we're going to be able to talk to an author about that's moving and interesting. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately I'm, um, I'm strongly biased towards, uh, even my book reading, uh, needs to resonate. So, so I find myself falling in love a lot. My book is not, uh, is, is not one that we actually had on the show. Um, because as we went through all of these books on the, on the show, um, you know, I did love Stephanie Fu's memoir, uh, I love Britt Ray's uh, book about uh, mental mental health and climate change, and um, Anne Marie McDonald's uh, novel was amazing and just uh, virtuosic, and on and on. So many great things. But the one that that the book that I was reading all year, and that I realized was was my favorite thing that I read this year was Helen McDonald's Vesper Flights. And so Helen McDonald is the author of the memoir that was a big hit a couple of years ago called Ages for Hawk. Mm -hmm. And, and it was a, it's a grief memoir about, um, her mourning the loss of her father. Um, and while she's doing that, she's also training a goshawk, which as we come to learn is, is a notoriously wild and virtually untamable animal. Uh, and she's also reading TH White's memoir of attempting the same, except TH White was not only bad at it, but I think was doomed to be bad at it. Plus, you know, lacking talent also proceeded to do everything wrong. And, and so, so that's a, that's a wonderful book. It's a singular book. There's nothing like it. Um, but what, one of the things I took away from it was I just, I just really like, I really, I really like her mind. I really like hanging out with Helen McDonald and I wanted to hang out with her more. And so this book Vesper flights is a bunch of essays, uh, things she's published in different places. All of them have something to do with nature. Some, a lot of them have to do with birds, but they come from every angle. I mean, there's, there's, uh, they're all very short. Um, and that's why this book was with me all year because it kind of sat on the sort of currently reading row of my Kobo account. Um, and when I didn't have something on the go that I had to be reading for the show or, or for, you know, for some work purpose, um, I, I, I had this, I was filling in the time with this. It was always five to 10 minutes for Helen at the end of the day. And, um, and it was, and it's wonderful. And it's, I mean, I'm, I've got my, I've got my e-reader in front of me right now. And I just sort of randomly opened it to anything. And, and there's the observatory where, which opens with a line, I never cared much for swans until the day a swan told me I was wrong. And she pre proceeds to tell you about this day where she saw a swan and it came up out of the water towards her. And she was mindful of the fact that a swan can kill you um, because they're, they're very large, strong birds and they are you know, get close enough to one. And you'll find that concept of, Oh, if dinosaurs have feathers, they won't be scary anymore. Get close enough to a swan. You will be cured of that misapprehension. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just wonderful. And then a child enters the scene and the, and, and, you know, peril flashes briefly, but the swan swims away back into the water. And, uh, and that's wonderful. There's another one about swifts and the perpetual flight of the swift. And what must a house mean to migratory birds where to, to her it's home to them, it may be a signpost. It's a piece of landscape. And what does it mean as we humans, we build these things, we tear them down, we change things, we, we, we remake the world in ways that are just catastrophic for migratory animals. Um, and we don't even think about it. And in other ways we make, we, we, we make, we make homes for these animals. And it was just, it was just spending time with Helen McDonald thinking about nature is wonderful. And, and it works for me because I'm the guy who will be running out for a jog on Lakeshore and I will stop 
and I'll look up and, and because I've noticed that there's a red tailed hawk harassing the seagulls. And, and, and every time I do that, I look around and no one else sees it. And I'm the crazy guy who's like, can you believe what's going on right now in downtown Toronto? And no one else is seeing this. So I feel like, I feel like Helen McDonald is a kindred spirit. And it was really lovely to have this book that was kind of designed to live with me for a year. It also reinforces a theory that is currently predominant in my home that every person, once they reach a certain age, starts to get interested in birds. <laughs> that, that something something happens to us. I don't know if we become more stationary or if we just you know start looking up more rather than down. The bird fascination kicks in, and you know, and, and that's like that's how the next twenty or thirty years are going to go. Yeah. I, would you would you say this is a work of nature writing? Is it biography? Um, how would you, you know, how would you categorize it? Yeah, I would, I would, I would say certainly more nature writing. We don't, I don't learn much about Helen McDonald's life um, through it, through these pieces. She really is uh, turning her eye at words um, and turning her brain and intellect towards these questions about, about humans and, and nature. Um, I hesitate to say nature writing because I don't want to put off any reader who thinks nature writing isn't for them. Mm -hmm. This is, this is big idea stuff. This is literary nonfiction. Um, this is the smartest person, you know, giving a, a succinct, um, and moving lecture on whatever it's almost like, uh, you know, if, if you, if you like personal essays, if you, if you like a smart person reflecting on anything, um, and just letting their mind wander to the places where their mind, um, is, is able to really light up. Yep. Um, that's, that's Helen McDonald. Um, at this point I'll, I, you know, I'll read her on anything now. I'm, I, if she wants to write a novel, that's fine. Um, if she just wants to write these, you know, short reflections for the rest of her life, I'm, I'm in for that too. And you mentioned picking it up and putting it down. Is it a, yeah, a series of individual standalone chapters or is there a through line, uh, that, uh, that holds the book together? In classic um, uh, British ebook formatting fashion, uh, it is uh, completely undifferentiated in its middle section. Like the table of contents is intro, the book, endnotes. So uh, there are no chapters. It's it is just essay after essay. Um, the interesting thing about the way the ebook ebook was formatted. Um, and given that the table of contents didn't doesn't let me like find an essay afterwards, and it really is is this. Um, uh, the single uh, mass is I, I couldn't see when when the end of an essay was coming. I couldn't I couldn't kind of look ahead. So mm -hmm. so there would be times where she would you know the essay would be you know twenty pages instead of the maybe five I was expecting, um, and those would be slightly longer journeys. And I was I was just kind of I was just kind of into it. I liked I liked the breaking up of that rhythm and the, the little bit of surprise that you know, we're going to go deeper. She's going to break this idea into a few pieces. This is we're going to we're going to get into a little bit of technology of construction of of uh, energy of of who knows and then we're gonna you know she's maybe wildlife will only enter tangentially at the end as as she explains this milieu of, of economics and and technology so um yeah really really easy to dip into um and and almost reading it linearly is a little bit like dipping into it because you, you do not know what's coming next all right so one more time the name of the book and the author it is Vesper Flights by Helen McDonald. Nathan, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for letting us keep you company. And we hope we helped you find something great to read, whether that's over the holidays or in the new year. All of the books mentioned here are at kobo.com slash conversation, and there's a link in the show notes. More author interviews are on the way, so hit that subscribe button and be sure not to miss a single one. Happy holidays, happy new year, and thank you for listening.